you know, we will never compromise on the things that I think make a good company a good company, which is giving back to the community, giving back to the planet and giving back to their people. It's an age old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. In 2011, Dave Heath was an aspiring entrepreneur in search of an idea when a single line in a news story caught his attention. It said the number one requested item in homeless shelters was socks. Dave's mind was spinning and Bombas, the idea, was formed. Together with his colleague, Randy Goldberg, Heath set out to launch a line of socks with a twist. For every pair of socks purchased, Heath and Goldberg would pledge to donate a pair to homeless shelters. It was a bold and potentially risky plan. So they enlisted creative support from Andrew Heath and Aaron Wolk to produce the perfect sock. By 2013, the co-founders launched Bombus, which is Latin for Bumblebee, after raising a little more than $100,000 on Indiegogo. Within a year, they were pitching their idea on Shark Tank and successfully acquired the interest and additional seed money from apparel impresario Damon John. Bombus was off and running, in very comfortable, well-designed socks, I might add. Today, Bombus is a juggernaut in the apparel industry, not just for their sales volume, but their mind share. Dave and his co-founders proved that you can build a sustainable and profitable business on a wholesome premise of giving. And from a practical standpoint, they dispelled certain myths of building a retail brand. You see, what makes Bombas special is their commitment to their core values. But what makes them unique, particularly in apparel, is that they've been profitable from year one. Instead of falling into the debt trap and focusing on misleading metrics such as lifetime customer value, they built a model that would self-sustain and self-perpetuate growth. There are so many lessons to be gleaned from the example that they've set, and they're less than a decade old. In this episode, we speak to Dave about entrepreneurship, the value of B Corp status, operating a business during a pandemic, and staying focused as a mission-driven company. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Mori, CEO of Mori Creative Studios, executive producer of social justice podcast Newsbeat, and host of Grow for Good. This is a special episode for us at Grow for Good because the company we're profiling is one that we used as a prime inspiration for this very show. In fact, it's in the original conceptual notes when we drafted the format. So we're incredibly fortunate to have Dave Heath, CEO and co-founder of Bombas, join us today. Dave, thank you for coming on the show. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you. So Dave, we covered the Bombas origin story in the introduction to the show. And I want to start off by speaking more to the spirit of entrepreneurship, as there are undoubtedly listeners who are truly inspired by what you and your co-founders have been able to accomplish. Bombas keeps some pretty good company when it comes to corporate social responsibility. And it's not uncommon for you to be mentioned in the same articles as Patagonia, Tom's, Ben and Jerry's, etc. Do you ever step back and just take it all in? Are you amazed at what you and your team have accomplished in relatively short order? I mean, yeah, every single day that I wake up, you know, I think when we started the company seven years ago, we started with this idea of wanting to you know, make a small little impact um, in the community, you know, that we work and live in. And that was specifically, obviously, giving socks back to the homeless community after learning they were the number one most requested clothing item. You know, we had 
set out and we're like, I don't know, we've never made a pair of socks, let alone sold a pair of socks, let alone donated a pair of socks. So when we kind of set out, we thought, you know, maybe we'll build a you know, couple million dollar business, you know, donate a few 10,000 pairs of socks, um, you know, every few years. And here we are seven years later, we're just, uh, we just crossed our 40 millionth pair donated. There's so much more that we're doing now as we look towards the future. And it's, it, yeah, it's, it's truly mind blowing. It's got to be. And before we get into the deeper mission-driven aspects of the conversation, I'd like to stay on your path as an entrepreneur and product developer, because it's a parallel storyline of Bombas in that you developed an extremely high quality and thoughtful product. It's not just socks that you got into. So before getting into how you've diversified or, and the mission-oriented, can you just brag a bit about the socks? <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the fact that we've donated 40 million pairs means that we've sold 40 million pairs. Right. And I don't think that there's a world in which we would have ever sold 40 million pairs unless we truly had uh, the best product on the market, especially related to comfort. And so I think part of the benefit of, of how we ended up getting there um, was because actually I came with zero product development or manufacturing or apparel experience, you know. First part of my career, I sold software. The second part of my career, I worked at a media company. And so this was a true kind of ground up build for me from an entrepreneurship perspective. I had to learn everything. Interestingly enough, during the product development stage of the business, um, which I spent almost two years doing, mm. um, every time I would talk to factories and say, oh, I want to use this type of cotton or this type of you know seamless toe or this type of arch support and all this thing, they would always be like, you're crazy. No one cares about that. Only like the world's best athletes with the highest end, you know, running and hiking and cycling socks, you know, care about those types of technical features. But here I was, you know, coming at it from a pure consumer perspective. And even though I considered myself, you know, a bit of an athlete, you know, I wasn't definitely not an amateur or even a pro. I just wanted something that felt comfortable as I was walking to and from work. It's like that old adage they say, like spend a lot of money on your mattress because you you know spend a third of your life you know on your mattress. My thought was like, well, you probably spend two thirds of your life in socks, so you might as well spend the money to buy a good pair of socks. Dive into it just a little bit. What were some of the original product distinctions and and ideas that you had about it that were a challenge to the norm? Yeah, so for me, it all started with the seamless toe. So I was a kid that grew up with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD for most, you know, it's on a broad range of spectrum. And there's, you know, kids with ADHD up to kids with autism, oftentimes have hypersensitivity issues. And so for me as a kid, uh, I mean, putting on a pair of socks, I was always turned them inside out. And, you know, I would try I would constantly moving that little toe seam around so I wouldn't feel that little nub, you know, and I carried a lot of that even, you know, with me until I was an adult. And so for me, I was like, I have to find a way to get rid of this toe seam. And when I started doing research and product development, I realized that the only types of socks that were really using seamless toe were like $35 Italian dress socks, uh, <laughs> super, super high end. And so I started to push the factories we were working with. And I was like, why can't you put this on an athletic sock, something that's more for everyday wear? And they're like, we can, but no one's going to pay for that. And I was like, okay, well, I think. I would pay for it. So maybe some other people would. So it started with the seamless toe and then it moved to the arch support. So we designed our honeycomb arch support, 
which is basically just kind of a natural hug that moves around the middle of your foot. It provides a little bit of support, but it also prevents the sock from kind of sliding around in your shoe and getting all bunched up in one part and saggy in another part. And then I was like, well, I want them also to feel incredibly soft. So I literally said, what is the best fabric that you can use for this? And they said, well, long staple combed cotton. But again, it's very expensive. No one ever uses it unless they're using it in high-end dress socks. And I was like, let's go for it. I'm sure I can convince people to pay for it. (laughs) So we did that. We added a Y-stitched heel. We added what we called stay-up technology for our calf socks. So you know, we tested over 300 different tension levels and the right proprietary mix of fabrics to make sure that, you know, in a calf sock, it would stay up and never fall down, no matter how many times you wash or wear it, without also feeling overly constricted. And then on our ankle socks, we put a blister tab that on like our low socks and prevents your shoe from rubbing the back of your foot and causing blisters, which I stole from really high-end marathon-level running socks. So all of these kind of little features and benefits, I Frankenstein from all over different types of products. And I think because I didn't come out of the traditional manufacturing world where I would have said like, yeah, you're right. The consumer doesn't care about that. Like, what's the cheapest cost you can make this for? I'll sell it on the brand alone. We ended up coming up with a really incredibly superior product. I love the enthusiasm when you really get an entrepreneur rolling about the core product and you, and <laughs> get, you take everything else away. Just listening to you go crazy about the sock, how it happened. It's such a, these are the things that sometimes we take for granted, the, the, uh, the amount of passion that goes into developing these things and the thought that's behind it that we take for granted as the consumer. But somebody thought of all those things right down to that little nub that bothered your ADHD toe. Totally. Totally. And, and I, I think I think you hit on something that's right there, which is characteristically for me, when I talk to other founders or I look to advise or mentor or invest in other startups, I look for the entrepreneur that came at it from a personal perspective, right? They have to have some personal, authentic connection to the problem that they're trying to solve mm. other than you know, the typical business school, which is like, well, I looked at the TAM of every market and I thought that the biggest opportunity from a SWOT analysis was going to be here. And so I engineered based on consumer data and I'm like, ugh, like boring. Like, you know, and I think the consumer feels that, right? Like in the early days, I was hustling and grinding this thing out. I was handing socks out to strangers in the gym, right? I'd like walk up to complete strangers and be like, hey, I know I'm interrupting your set. Can you remove your like headphones for a second? I'm about to give you a pair of socks as a complete stranger. And then by the way, I'd love to hear your feedback on them. The amount of strange looks that I got. But what was so validating for me as an entrepreneur is those same people, the next time I saw them in the gym would come back and be like, you know what? I tried your socks. Where can I buy them? I love them. And I was like, wow, this is so validating for me. And then I'd be like, let me get your information. As soon as we launch the company, I'll follow up with you. And I did this for you know about a year and a half as I was developing the product. I was slowly building up this kind of organic fan base of people that I was bringing along in my journey. And so that's why the day that we launched on Indiegogo, we did over $24,000 worth of sales. Oh, that's awesome. That is very cool. You talk about the channels that you ultimately wound up distributing through our company, Mori Creative, is an inbound digital marketing company. So we know firsthand that the cost of customer acquisition through digital channels, particularly social, has increased dramatically in recent years. So I'm wondering if you can also speak to the channels that worked best for you in the beginning and then how you've diversified those channels subsequently and which ones you're finding effective today. 
Yeah, it's uh, a great question. So, you know, I, it's probably not a surprising answer, but I think everybody would say that they started with Facebook. I think at the time, and, and it's interesting, right? Because Facebook has grown and developed so much over the years. I remember talking to Blake Mankowski, the founder of Tom's, and I was like, what was your marketing strategy? And he was like, well, we put a page up on Facebook and we got a bunch of fans and then we marketed to them. <laughs> and I was like, well, that doesn't exist anymore. So like, no. you know, the new age for like Bombas when we started was really a kind of like the bleeding edge of real you know, digital marketing from a Facebook advertising perspective. It was right when their platform was starting to get developed and you know the, the auction platform and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a certain degree of right place, right time. Um, I feel for the brands that launch today, it's a far more competitive environment. You know, you're competing against people like us who have, you know, now close to eight years of in the trenches experience and massive marketing budgets, you know, coupled with, you know, technical expertise. It'd be like a person coming in with like $10 trying to day trade against some of the best hedge fund managers in the world who are like living and breathing this thing for the last 25 years and understand market conditions and how the market moves and stuff. Like that's what our team does on Facebook. Like they could see micro trends and move immediately to start to capture. So for us, I think for a certain degree, like, yes, have we seen a rise in CPAs kind of across the board? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I've said that the number one antidote, I, I think there's kind of two spectrums, but the number one antidote to rising CPA costs is absolutely good creative, right? And I think by only raising $4 million, like we're not one of these massive venture firm backed T2C companies, right? Like some of our peers have gone on and raised 50, 100, 200 million dollars to you know spend on marketing and grow their customer base. Like for me, I gave my marketing team, I said, you have this amount of margin to work with because that's break even on first purchase and I'm not letting you spend a dollar over that. And so what that forced the marketing team to do is work really close with our in-house creative team to say, all right, like what audiences, what messaging, what creative assets, you know, what call to actions do we need? And then start to really think, you know, once we got to scale, to think about every step of the funnel, how do we increase AOV by $2? How can we increase conversion rate on the, on the PDP or the checkout? You know, how can we increase loyalty to drive you know, word of mouth AOV and then repeat purchases? And so now there's you know, hundreds of inputs that we use to kind of combat the rise in CPA costs. But what I've seen happen time and time again, perfect example, we came out with this video when we donated our millionth pair of socks and it was meant to be a thank you video to our customers. Our CMO was like, why don't we try putting this video on Facebook? Facebook has kind of just launched video ads. And we're like, yeah, sure. But you know, it's literally pitched as a three and a half minute video that we sent out to our customer base, basically thanking them for helping us get to a million pairs donated. Well, it turns out that was like the backdrop for one of the first kind of that founder story, you know, style of creative that now you see prolifically is everywhere, right? It starts well, especially with like, during COVID. You can't get founders off TV right now. Totally. And so like <laughs> you used to see, you know, it started with like, hi, I'm Dave and this is Randy and this is why we chose socks. And, and it goes into the story. And that that single video is probably responsible for over $30 million of revenue. Mm. And, you know, it was so much so that 
Facebook ended up writing a case study on it. And we got mentioned during Facebook's earning calls, you know, for that video specifically. And then all of a sudden, I heard from a lot of founders, they were like, hey, who's the video firm you use? Like, how do I copy this? And I was like, by the time you're even asking me that, it's too late. Like, yeah, it was Randy with an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, the same thing with the Dollar Shave Club video. Everyone's like, well, I'm going to make that video. And it's like, that's done. Like, yep. if you're seeing it, it's too late. So like, you have to create your own way to kind of cut through the noise and be original and connect to the consumer the way that like original advertising worked. Obviously, with kind of digital platforms, we're able to kind of distill down and look at data and clicks and see what part of the video or the ad creative that people like the most and adjust. And there's so much more data behind it. But, you know, you still have to start from a basis of like good, authentic creative. See, we could stay here for a very long time talking about this because <laughs> this is certainly where we live day in and day out. And one of the things we try to, to express to people in, uh, outside of our industry is I'm not sure people can really appreciate the velocity of change. What worked yesterday does not necessarily work today. Yep. And that is particularly true in uh, paid performance marketing. We take more of a ground and pound game. Inbound is a completely different process. When you're in the performance market game, you have to be, uh, just like you say, it's like somebody opening up a day trading account versus competing with quants sitting in a room with PhDs. 100%. But you, you've also, I think you've gotten to the point where you've been able to backstop these, uh, we'll call them non-traditional, although it's the norm today. These digital campaigns, you've backstopped with some traditional campaigns as well. Have you seen a lift with any traditional marketing that has helped you kind of bolster the brand and that you can correlate to an increase in sales? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if you're referring to our move to TV as kind of a traditional marketing channel. Yes. We still take a very DR type of approach mm -hmm. to most of our advertising. And, you know, a lot of times we'll like see what works on Facebook and then move it over to television, right? Because we're like, okay, we have a pretty good sense that this audience responds this way, you know, and, and is quite engaged in this piece of creative. Let's cut down to a 30 second and move it on to the television. That being said, over the years, we've tried more branded type of creatives. The one that comes to mind for us is this thing called the laundry back guarantee. We put out this video that was basically like, if you ever lose a pair of socks in the laundry, like reach out to our customer service department and we'll replace the pair for free. And that backstops our 100% happiness guaranteed, which is like short of telling me that if you put the sock on a, as a sock puppet on your hand and you didn't like the way it looked at you, like we'd still replace <laughs> the sock. Like we have like kind of a no questions asked customer service policy. But it bombed on Facebook, absolutely bombed. Mm. And, you know, we were so proud of the idea and we loved the campaign that we said, let's try it on TV. And then it ended up absolutely crushing on TV. Really? So I would say three years ago, TV probably represented 10% of our budget, our total marketing budget, which, by the way, has grown significantly year over year. And now it's probably close to 25%. Mm. It's interesting to speak to you right now in what is a historic time in 2020. You're running a, a retail operation and there's so much news, good, bad, or otherwise, about the retail apocalypse being hastened by the coronavirus. I want to talk a little bit about running a retail company during this time, because from supply chain disruption to the brick and mortar implosion, retail's 
taken some pretty substantial hits. You're built a little differently, but I'm wondering if you can share anything that you've learned specific to this process right now and how it might inform your decisions moving forward. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think like the rest of the world, when COVID first hit, every single business was down across the board and ours was no exception. What was surprising, and now that I look back on it, I can obviously like figure out the reasons why. But what was surprising is we actually saw quite a big rebound. And then so much so that we are now performing at double the growth that we were prior to COVID in January and February, Mm. pretty consistently for the last three months. I think a lot of that is because retail demand, physical retail demand has all shifted online. And the consumer that used to go to TJ Maxx or Costco or whatever to pick up their socks are now sitting at home and either catching one of our ads on Facebook or TV, or they're typing into Google like men's athletic socks or women's, you know, compression socks or whatever. And we, because we're, you know, the juggernaut in the in the sock space, are always coming up number one. And so now we're getting a lot of customers that I actually think never would have discovered us for just force of habit of being, you know, a retail type of customer. So I think that's that's one tailwind that you know we've really benefited from. The other one is I think you know people are stuck at home, and in the beginning of this, it was still kind of at the the tail end of of winter, and people wanted warm, cozy, comfortable socks. I mean, socks became the new shoes because everyone wasn't leaving their house. So you know I think that's the second thing, and then the third thing is I think that people are also because they're feeling so uncertain around you know the world not only with just covid but black lives matter and the general election that's about to come up they're investing in the little luxuries in life that just bring a little bit of joy and comfort to their day and so you say for 50 bucks you'll have the best feeling feet for you know the rest of the year and so you know it's a somewhat of a, an affordable luxury even for those that think that nine to twelve dollars for a pair of socks is expensive you know like i said you buy a four or five pack and now you're literally walking on clouds every minute of every day and if that's the thing that just brings you that little bit of joy because you can't go out to starbucks and get a coffee anymore you can't walk around a mall and, and do retail therapy this is the thing that can provide you some comfort the lessons that i've learned honestly this was such this, uh, as we all know, this was such a global pandemic. I don't think there's anything that we could have done to plan any differently for it. And I don't think there's anything that we would really do going forward because this is such an anomaly. I mean, like it, no one, no one predicted that this was going to happen. So, you know, how do you try to war games or scenario plan for an otherwise infinite number of global catastrophes that could happen. I don't know. You kind of just like roll with the punches and you know, you just hope that you have a team like the team that I have at Bombas who is incredibly smart, incredibly talented. Like we didn't miss a beat from closing the office to two days later we were all working from home mm. and it was business as usual. And people were so laser focused on, okay, let's put all the long-term strategic projects on hold. And let's figure out how to use that extra time to react today for how we can best prepare ourselves for this current situation. But again, nothing will prepare you for when your warehouse shuts down. Right. Like we got the phone call and they're like, 
there was a COVID outbreak at the warehouse. We got to completely desanitize. And we were told it's going to be anywhere from a week to six weeks. And we're like, mm. I don't know. What do you do in that scenario? We're like, okay, well, I guess sit and wait, you know? Wow. Well, you also have an incredibly loyal team, and we could probably do an entire episode on corporate culture and what you've been able to imbue at Bombas because your turnover is almost ridiculously low. Yeah, six people in seven years out of 150. I mean, that's almost unheard of, Dave. That's, yeah. that's, that's preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about the sock this groundbreaking sock and, and what it took to go to market. But today, Bombas is more than socks. That's right. You've diversified the product line, but I'm wondering if this year gave you any pause about that because of the circumstances uh, surrounding the economy and the uncertainty. And just more broadly, how do you see brand dilution? What, what do you worry about in terms of expanding the line? Is there a limit for this? Um. I think there is a limit as a function of time. And I say that because like, obviously my North Star, you know, and I think anybody who starts an apparel brand can't look at a brand like Nike or Patagonia, you know, or Lululemon as their kind of like North Star, right? Fair. These are brands that started with single product categories and are now multiple product categories in areas that you probably never would have thought they would be in when they first launched. And so as far as my head is things like, I'm like, yeah, it, it can get pretty limitless. But there's a great story in here where for the first six years, we were so laser focused on socks because there was so much growth that we were dealing with that honestly, we couldn't even think to like work on or launch another product, right? We felt like we had so much runway to really get to a point where we were owning the sock category, where we were kind of the benchmark for what a regular everyday athletic sock looked like? What did a high-performance running sock look like? What did a merino wool sock look like? What did a dress sock look like? You know, and all of the categories that we expanded alone in socks over the last six years, which felt like such natural progressions. And also we took back customer feedback on what product categories they wanted next. And we also looked at where the market was going and we thought where their opportunities were. And we created a compression sock business that ended up being quite large. But then, again, we had aspirations to build Bombas from not just being a sock company to being a multi-product apparel company, both because of that's what we had aspirations for for the brand, but also because there are other needs that the homeless have outside of socks. So the number two most requested clothing item is underwear, mm. similar to socks, hygiene issues. Most people wear them through. They don't donate them. T-shirts is number three, because again, another close to body item, typically used as a layering piece, absorbs a lot of sweat. When you don't have access to a washing machine, they can get quite quite gross and dirty. And so they end up turning them over a lot, uh, quite quickly. Turns out that developing a T-shirt is a lot easier than developing underwear. So <laughs> that's why T-shirts came second. And so we launched T-shirts last year. And I think due to the success of our T-shirt launch and the overall success of our business, I mean... Year five, we were doing $100 million of, of revenue and 20% EBITDA. And we were like, okay, this thing is on fire. We've got a lot of cash flow. We're growing like crazy. Customers want more from us. Like, let's give them more. And so we started working on sweatpants and sweatshirts and leggings and you know, running shorts and all of these other product categories because of, because it, we got kind of caught up in the excitement of, of the growth. And honestly, we started developing these things. And before we came to like launching them, we actually did launch sweatpants and sweatshirts we had kind of got so caught up in the excitement of it all that we 
didn't take the appropriate amount of time to, to do exactly what you're talking about, which is like, how do you shift from being a brand story that is so known for one product category to now talking about multiple product categories? How do you merchandise the site differently? How do you, you know, talk about it not only as the brand, but do you do dedicated advertising for t-shirts and sweatshirts? Or do you try to say like, come to Bombas for the best socks, tees, underwear, sweatshirts, sweatpants, whatever, as a, as a holistic brand, which most brands eventually get to. We were kind of trying to run before we walked. And we kind of took a step back and we said, you know what? Let's take our own advice. The thing that got us here today is, is laser focus. Let's pick the one or two product categories that make the most sense for us as a brand. And let's stay laser focused on those two additional product categories for the next five years. And then let's start to earn, like, we had to take a step back and go, we're building Bombas to be a brand that we want to be around for 100 years, right? Like the best brands in the world are not built over years, they're built over decades. So when we kind of took a more long-term holistic view, we said, all right, like, let's, like, we're, we're doing well, but let's not get, get ahead of ourselves. And let's get back to the things that we know how to do really well. Let's focus, let's nail the product, let's nail the messaging, and then slowly move on from there. You hit on something that I would love for you to speak about before we take a quick break. I'd love for you to recount a story that I heard on another podcast. So talk about stealing. But it really resonated with me because when you first established the program to donate a pair for every pair sold, you actually discovered that one size didn't necessarily fit all and the homeless population had different design needs. So not only do you donate pairs, they're different. Can you talk about that? And then I'll gush later about how amazing it is that you took the time to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love this question because, you know, from day one, it was important to me having been out and commuting in New York City, you, you interact with the homeless community on a regular basis. I had started carrying socks around with me before we'd even made our own Bomba socks. I carried socks around with me and handed them out. And just the human interaction and the dignity that I would feel by presenting something, an item of need that they need outside of a dollar or a leftover piece of food that I have or whatever, the soda can that I had in my backpack. So when we launched, I said, I want our homeless customers to feel the same joy and comfort that our paying customers feel for. And so we started actually donating the exact same socks that we were selling to the homeless community. Yeah, our first line of product was quite bright. You know, they had blue and pink and orange and yellow, like neon accents and black and gray base colors. And so every time I would have a pair of gray and pink or gray and blue or gray and orange, you know, out on the streets with me, I'd always hear the feedback is like, hey, do you actually have black socks? Mm. And that got me thinking, oh, maybe the product that we're selling to our customers is not necessarily the best product for the customers living on the streets. And we started talking to our charity partners and saying, hey, let's develop a product that meets the needs of the homeless community because obviously they're not washing their socks every day, right? They're worried about dirt. They want durability. So we re-engineered the kind of core Bombas sock that we were selling and we focused on those three key areas. So we reinforced all the seams for greater durability we use darker colors to minimize the visible wear. And then what was really cool is we started treating it with an antimicrobial treatment, which helps prevent the growth of fungus and other foot diseases. And if you're wearing your socks all the time and you're not having the ability to either take a shower yourself or wash your, your socks, that's an actual like really important benefit, which typically in a consumer product for antimicrobial, it washes out, you know, after call it 
eight or 10 washes because the detergents are so strong. So here is like the perfect use case for this type of technology for the homeless community. And that's kind of how we've over the years developed our brand. I kind of had this realization that last year that we were not only building a consumer brand for the paying customer, we were also building a brand for the homeless community. And that to me was like a massive unlock because I'm sitting there going, wow, could we be the first ever consumer brand specifically designed and dedicated to serving the needs of the homeless community? This is a community that typically gets our leftovers. They typically get secondhand items. They typically get whatever is you know extra run or oversized or whatever. And we're like, you deal with that. Now they're having a product that is specifically designed to them with the packaging on size specific, you know, so that when you're handing this to them, and now I have these interactions in the streets where I hand a pair of socks to a, you know, a homeless person and they go, Bombus, I love Bombus. Like you guys <laughs> are the ones that like donate a pair of socks for every pair of socks you sell. Incredible. I mean, these aren't people that are consuming Facebook ads, right? Like, so the fact that the word is getting out amongst that community and the fact that they can feel special knowing there is a company out there designing products with them in mind, knowing that at that time, they aren't going to be able to afford to purchase that product from us, to me was like, wow, that's like what's crazy about what we're doing. That's the perfect bridge to the more mission-oriented part of this episode. But first, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll dive deeper into the Bombus mission and how the company has really adopted this culture of giving. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to the Grow for Good podcast with Jed Mori of Mori Creative Studios. And my guest is Dave Heath, the CEO and co-founder of Bombas. Dave, we recently interviewed a woman, a powerhouse in New York, Susan McPherson. She's a top consultant to brands that are seeking to launch or grow their sustainability initiatives, DEI, female executive empowerment initiatives, companies with good core values. We spoke to her about authenticity in the age of cynicism. And I'm wondering, have you found it challenging to stay authentic and true to your mission in today's world? And what kind of challenges do you face that might be different for you as the head of a mission-driven for-profit company? Honestly, this has never been uh, a challenge for us. And I think because of exactly how you, know, you led into this conversation is authenticity. And I like reference back to the beginning of our conversation. Bombus wasn't started as a MBA business school project, or how do I get rich off of you know creating some business? Right. I saw a problem in our community, and I said that's really sad. Right. The fact that there's 650,000 Americans every single year that view an item of clothing that I and most of us have never spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about as a luxury item in America, by the way, it was like heartbreaking to me. I then saw and took inspiration from what people like Tom's was doing and what people like Warby Parker were doing. And I wanted to leverage my passion for entrepreneurship to help solve this problem. And again, before I had even said and decided what type of sock we were going to sell or do any of the market research, 
I went out and I bought 50 pairs of, of Hanes socks and I started putting them in my backpack to and from work. And I started interacting with the homeless community and seeing that where in the past I may have dropped a dollar or some loose change or a granola bar or whatever. Now to say, hey, I don't have you know any money, but what I do have is a clean pair of socks. And to watch the expression on these people's faces to go, how did you know that is exactly what I needed? Mm. And I had this one story where this guy took off his shoes and on one foot, he had wrapped his bandana as a sock. And on the other, he had literally taken a Ziploc plastic bag and put it on his foot as a way to prevent blisters from rubbing around in his shoes. And that image for me will never get out of my head. And that's the stuff that motivates me and leads me to continue to drive this company forward. And you know, I think the customer can sense that, right? And the fact that every single one of our employees is given 10 pairs of donation socks on the first day that they join, and they're required within their first two weeks to hand out 10 pairs of socks individually so that they can start to have 10 individual experiences that all map to the hundreds of experiences that I had had in the early years. It's why we as an organization collectively donated 10,000 hours as a team last year in pure volunteer hours, because we do 15 giving events with various different partners throughout New York City every single month. And of the team that we have, when the sign-up sheet goes up, it's filled within an hour, so much so that we have to reserve time slots for new employees because they can't get on because the old employees are so passionate about volunteering. And I think it's a big part of the reason that people come to Bombas. And then that same person who's at one moment serving a cup of soup and a pair of socks to somebody on the streets is then going back to their desk. And when they're thinking about how can they make an impact in, in their job, they're keeping those experiences with them. And I think, well, I don't know what you would call it, energy or what, I think it shows up in our work and I think it shows up to the customer and the customer can sense that and it makes them feel really excited about being a part of this journey. Now, that's on the mission side of things. That's not to say that we haven't had tremendous challenges in other areas of the business related to corporate responsibility and CSR and diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity and inclusion is probably the biggest one for me. I'm a cisgendered white male, right? I had never really thought about race. Like I grew up in the generation where I was told to like never see color and not, you know, not look at another person's skin color and make assumptions about their race. Where in turn, it turns out after tons of reading and education and conversations with people of color over the last, you know, 12 months, that that was actually undermining their experience. And so then it goes back to authenticity. And I was like, you know what? If I want to be an authentic leader, I've got to do the work. I've got to pick up all the books. I've got to watch all of the movies. I've got to have the conversations with these people. I've got to bring in consultants that specialize in this work to help educate me so that then I can also, in a conversation like this, start to speak authentically to it and start to speak to the white privilege that I've had from the moment that I was born. And that's not to say that I haven't had hardships, but the fact that I was born a white male in New York has given me so many more tremendous opportunities that has probably led me to be the successful CEO that I am today, where the amount of headwinds and challenges that a person of color, who's to say that if they would have been still in the same position that I am today, just given the amount of adversity that they feel. And so like opening up my eyes to that then allows me to become a much better ally to 
our black employees, our other employees, people of color, other represented groups, our customers who are people of color, right? So that I can then start to reprioritize the things in our organization, both internally and externally. I mean, just from the Black Lives Matter movement alone, you know, we for two years now, we've sold a pride sock collection, right? And again, 20, almost 25% of our employee base identifies as LGBTQ plus uh, IA. And so due to the um, tremendous amount of people that are in our organization, we knew how important celebrating pride was to them. And so we said, okay, well, to support this community, we're going to kick off an initiative to create a collection of socks inspired by pride. Uh, so rainbow flags, LGBTQ flags, bi flags, transgender flags, all of it. And then last year, we paid to have a float in the New York City Pride Parade. Now, that's because they were pretty outspoken about it and because there was a large mass of them. When I look at the Black community at our company, when it last year is probably 4 or 5% of our, of our total company base. Um, today, it's 8%, so still a long way to go in terms of improvement, but getting better. Now, we actually have a big enough mass at our company where they feel comfortable uniting as a group and coming to leadership and saying, here's a conversation we want to have. And then spurred on by, obviously, all the, the protests that have been happening and the focus on Black Lives Matter, we kind of sat there and were like, well, why aren't we making a Black Lives Matter or, or Black community-inspired design that really speaks to the Black community? And now it's starting to open up our eyes around like, okay, what are all of the underrepresented groups? You know, I think plus size was a massive movement a few years ago, but like, why does it take time for those movements to happen? And I think we want to start to become a leader in that space, you know, now that we're big enough that we can actually be. See, something that's really resonating with me doing these interviews with founders and executives of mission-driven companies like Bombas is the phrase that I keep hearing over and over, which is do the work. There's, there's something about when you have a mission-driven company and it's hardwired into the DNA from its founding, the founders, the executives, the employees, and the stakeholders of the organization seem to be more open and willing to, quote-unquote, do the work and not just stop at the one aspect of the mission that drove them to where they are today. We tend to talk about the, this opening flower, like once the flower is open and receptive to being pollinated, the ideas just come flowing in and has a dramatic impact on the company culture and creates even more change in ways that maybe you didn't see it. So we're in this moment, and as you pointed out, where society is, is woke and structures are crumbling, norms are exploding. And you've been on the cutting edge of given and mission, but you're still evolving through this unsettling period. Your employees must love this aspect of the company. And I'm wondering if how much of it is them pushing you to grow? You know, at Bombas, our brand is rooted in bees, right? Our logo is a bee. Bombas is derived from the Latin word for bumblebee. Our tagline is Be Better, spelled B-E-E. -E. And from day one, we had always thought of adapting and evolving from that. Um, we've always considered our team to be, we always, we, we call them the hive, right? And the idea is that bees work together as a team to make their world a better place. That leadership philosophy 
from us as our as the founders be better and you know working together as a team was really rooted as one of our core values from day one and really hasn't changed and so i think it's hard to kind of look back but my, i believe that it's not just me and it's not just the team it's a collaborative effort between the both of us it's me being vulnerable and humble enough to say hey i don't always have all the answers and sometimes i would love some guidance from you because guess what if you're at bombus there's a reason because you're probably one of the most talented people at the thing that you do not to mention you also have to be a good person that actually gives a shit about this world and wanting to give back beyond just for own selfish good and so you know, the, the the roundabout answer of a way of answering your question is that i think it naturally happened and continues to happen you know like when I'll go back to the black lives matter movement only because it's so relevant and it was so recent four white cisgendered male founders and an executive team that is 90% white and the person of color we have on the team identifies as indian so we have no black representation at the executive level and here we are dealing with one of the most tremendous historic movements for black people in in my current you know generation and we were so grateful that the black hive which they've now as kind of an employee resource group named themselves came together to help the leaders of the organization lead through this time right they told us how to speak to the audience they directed which five organizations we should donate money to they told us you know how we should be talking to our customers how we should be as leaders talking to the rest of our employees mm-hmm. so you know there's times where i've obviously done the work and led and instilled certain values and ideologies within the organization and so has every single one of the founders and executive members and management team but it's a truly it's a collaborative effort and i think that's again what makes bombas such a special place because it's not just leadership from the top we have leaders throughout the entire organization across all levels and they show up in different ways at different times based on you know their own personal passions you just talked about a number of bees and uh, i don't want to lose sight of another really important bee in your existence so i just if we can touch on your status as a b corp before we ask a couple of quick closing questions can you describe exactly what it means to be a b corporation and what you had to do to obtain that designation sure b corp for those that don't know stands as a benefit corporation and while it's now it's an official way that you can file we just got the b corp certification so we still file as a c corp but we were b corp certified we did this 4 years ago and honestly it was a pretty large undertaking i think actually when when i first heard about it it was probably year 1 or 2 and i was like oh i want to do that and it was like five of us sitting around a table and i was like all right andrew you're our head of operations like you're going to go you know research what it takes to become a b corp he came back and he was like there's like 400 questions we need to answer and some of them relate to stuff that honestly it's like what's your maternity policy i'm like well we've got five people and no one you know no one's pregnant so like we're not spending a lot of time thinking about what the maternity policy is so there were so many things in there that just didn't make sense at the time 
And then again, we had this incredibly passionate customer service rep that was on our team. And he came to me one day and he was like, hey, why aren't we B Corp certified? And I was like, honestly, I've always wanted to do it, but we're growing so fast. We're kind of resource limited from a headcount perspective. We got all these projects going on. Just like, we can't tackle it right now. And he's like, well, what if I did it? What if I like did the work and like, you know, worked with the different people in different departments to start pulling this together? And I was like, awesome. Like, go for it. Right. And so he took the initiative and his name is Walker Stoley. It is massive. It is massive. And so he got it done in six months, mm. you know, and he really had to work and learn all the different ins, ins and outs of different parts of the organization. And so for us, you know, we're, we maintain our, our B Corp status because for the customer and the consumer that knows, or for the you know, employee that's looking to work at a place, it's an official stamp that says we went through a certification process that meets certain requirements in order to qualify as a benefit corporation. And it signals to you know potential investors, or if we ever decide to take the company public, like it'll signal to the market that, hey, we're not in this for profit alone. So if that's what you're looking for as a from a return profile, I actually think for us it has clearly helped. But you know, we will never compromise on the things that I think make a good company a good company, which is giving back to the community, giving back to the planet, and giving back to their people. There's also a wave of SRI, socially responsible investing, that has begun to take root. We'll be curious to see if the markets tank, if people hold on to that uh, type of philosophy. But as a signal to the investment community, it is important. And people are beginning to vote with their feet and make certain choices, which is why you see these really powerful movements that are moving to defund entire industries. You can think about fossil fuels and other industries that have a a large impact on our daily lives and the environment. And this type of change happens when pocketbooks are threatened and SRI is one of the ways that does it. So it is a massive undertaking though. So kudos to you for, for sticking with it and do that service manager. Thank you. So I have two quick questions before we leave. The first one's actually a little bit cold and it's just meant to get the, at the heart of the business model. Do you think that you would have been as successful no without the core mission i know exactly where you're going no not at all how come the whole reason bombas exists is because of the mission right and i've tried to reinforce this you know obviously throughout the conversation i didn't say i wanted to start a sock company right like i don't think a lot of people ever say that (laughs) you know i saw this need in the community and i said i want to solve that I just happened to realize that the only way to solve donating a lot of socks meant selling a lot of socks. And the only way to sell a lot of socks would be to create the best socks in the history of feet. There are a lot of moments that I can look back to in our journey that probably wouldn't have happened without our mission. I don't think that we would have gotten on Shark Tank without our mission. I don't think we would have done a global campaign with The Gap in year two, which is a full collaboration where we're, we're sold in all 3,200 stores and had advertising signage for three months during the holiday season uh, without our mission because they wanted to donate a million pairs of socks alongside our collaboration. I don't think we would have retained the level of employees or attracted the level of employees that we would have had without our mission and the fact that those people are so close to giving back and see the impact that we have in this world. I don't think our customers would have buy, which we survey our customers all the time. And depending on the types of creative that we're pushing, it's typically always either the number one or the number two reason that people have bought the product. And typically comfort 
or the product itself, the, the features and benefits is those two things kind of ping pong back and forth for number one and number two slots. So all the data, all of the experiences, I mean, everything that I think has led us to where we are today, I can, I can vehemently say that none of that would have been possible without our mission. Okay. I love that. So <laughs> then my last question, which is actually one that I typically loathe, uh, it's the, what can you give advice on question, but in this space and in this time, there are so many entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs that are looking to make a difference. So even if not advice, can you offer some guidance on some common pitfalls that mission-driven entrepreneurs might face, things that you learn the hard way? Totally. In conversations that I have with entrepreneurs who want to start mission-driven businesses, far too often, it seems like the afterthought, right? They want to start a business and then they also want to give back, which again, is far more admirable than people who are like, I, I don't give a crap about handing, you know, giving back you know, to the community. I just want to create a business and make a lot of money. So for those that actually do have the aspirations of it, look, if it starts with the idea for the product and then you try to layer the mission in on top, my advice in both scenarios is go out and get close to it, right? Whatever your equivalent of the thing that you want to do to give back is, go out and buy those pairs of socks and put them in your backpack and hand them out to people individually. Go work at homeless shelters and understand what it means to be homeless and build relationships with charity partners so that they can then become allies to you as you continue to grow. So if you want to eliminate plastics from the ocean, if you're telling me you're starting a business to eliminate plastics in the ocean and you haven't done a beach cleanup effort or gone out on some sort of plastic cleanup effort, then I call a bullshit on what you're doing, right? If you want to give back to children in a third world country that don't have access to education, go there and see it firsthand and go volunteer some time mm. so that you can speak to it authentically. And I will tell you that experience that you do will be the gasoline that you can always pour on the fire anytime you need to motivate your team, motivate investors, motivate customers, because you will have authentically gone out and done it. It's like the old say, it's like what you said, do the work. Don't just write the check, right? People always say, it's like, it's easy to write a check. Go out there and effing do it. So my producer, Sage Levine, who's with us here, and my business partner at Mori, John Sasala, also raging fans and raving fans of Bombas and can attest to the fact that we just checked off a big item on our guest bucket list for Grow For Good, <laughs> interviewing Dave Heath, the CEO and co-founder of Bombas. Dave, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, for your wisdom, and for the company that you've created that's inspired so many people. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moricreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, and review us wherever you download podcasts. The Grow For Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.